Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Art Purcell. And I'm Isaac Pingree. This week, we are very excited to welcome our next co-host, filmmaker, video producer, Isaac Pingree. Welcome, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think we should probably also say that uh, Isaac and I have known each other um, for 27 years. Is that right? Uh, I don't know. Since first grade. Yeah. 27 28 years a long time let's just put it that way um so in addition to being my friend isaac also started off making narrative films at the age of 15 is that right i just picked that number is that correct uh sure 14 i don't know 12 <laughs> high school is high school when i started trying to make movies <laughs> leading up to directing his first feature film when he was 20, which he shot on super 16 millimeter film with a budget of roughly $50,000. Since then, Isaac has been working on corporate videos and documentary films, having directed two documentary features since, and he's currently working on his third called uh, within a view, within a few degrees, a little jest of Bob Frank. And yeah, is that about it? Yeah, that, sounds, it? that sounds about right. But they've okay. uh, maybe they've heard it if they listen to all your podcasts because I've been on before. What episode was that? Like eighty something? I don't know, but uh, I think it was almost exactly two years ago now. Really, two years ago? Wow, that's I think awesome! So. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes so people can find it and just click on it that way. Um, but so I know you really well, obviously. But one of the things that I don't think I ever really knew about you is like how you found film in the first place like like what is your earliest memory of watching a movie i didn't have a good answer to this last time either but i don't have some some memory that it was some formative time where i just had some uh epiphany while while watching a movie but but you were like, like me that. right like you didn't really watch a lot of tv at home i probably watched more than most waldorf people but did you watch tv when you were younger like what like not really no and like we, i watched movies at my, my grandparents house like old movies like marx brothers right. movies and king kong and stuff I, I thought the marx brothers were funny i thought like king kong was scary but like right. it, it didn't like I wasn't thinking about any, like, about filmmaking or anything like that. It's funny. I, I had a similar thing. Like, I went to my grandparents' house and watched Marx Brothers and King Kong and all these old, you know, John Wayne movies and westerns and things. Um, yeah. So it's funny that grandparents, like, that's the intro to film for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so you don't really remember, like, when, you, like, how you watched movies pre-high school. Like, or how often you watch movies and any of that stuff? No, I wasn't, like, a serious movie watcher until I got into making movies. It didn't go the reverse. Interesting. Do, do you remember how you first came across Evil Dead? Like, how it even entered your brain? Like, like or your world? Well, I don't necessarily think Evil Dead is, like, the one whatever. But I think that was... That and El Mariachi were, like, important to me in high school in that they both showed that, like oh, you could do this, and you could do this really soon after finishing high school, and you could do it with not very much money. Right. But how did you even know about these movies? I mean, I probably heard about them from you. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like, like, how did you even hear, hear of Evil Dead or think to watch that movie or El Mariachi? I don't, um, I don't know. Uh, well, I do. I mean, specifically, I think, like, I watched Evil Dead 2, first or maybe i watch army of darkness first like it's just a movie that's going around like people watch 
Like I don't I don't remember who showed me that, and I think El Mariachi, my cousin Mike, showed me. I don't know. I mean, I definitely once I got into movies, then you like make more of a concerted effort to like, oh, what are the movies and what should I watch? Right. So, and then Mike was some was Mike someone you just knew because he's your cousin, or like did you like have a relationship with him that predated movies, or did you kind of start hanging out with Mike and talking to Mike more because he was also interested in movies? No, it was because he was my cousin. But, um, so I think before I started hanging out with Mike, because he was like eight years older than me, uh, I was doing like video stuff or stuff with a video camera. Even like growing up, my dad had like a VHS, like, you know, you used to put a whole VHS tape in it. And then like my stepdad had, uh, some like mini DV or, you know, high eight or something camera. And, and I think what happened was, so I was like making, and those are more just like, whatever, you're making a silly video where you like jump into the lagoon or something, or like you like set it up and, and do some kind of skit in front of it. And then I think what happened was, you know, Mike was like, I was like 14 or 15 and Mike was in his early twenties and he was getting into filmmaking. And so, um, I guess in like hanging out with him, it became like, oh, I get, I see. There's like, you can do more than just set up the camera. This is how you make a movie. So it was more like it started with the camera before like a love of movies. Is that what you're saying? No, kind it just of? started with whatever general like performance, anything. Like, I don't know. Like I was into like, I was always into like the school plays. And even at the same time in high school, remember I was in, uh, in that theater company in Berkeley that my sister, I think, and her, you know, I, I had a sister that's like eight years older than me. Oh, and right. Like, yeah, and so her and her friends had like started a theater company in Berkeley, like a bunch of people in their like early mid-20s or something. And so then I was able to come do that with them, you know, from age like whatever, 14 to 18. And so that's all just kind of part of the same thing, I think. And it just happened to turn into movies. Right, but you weren't like a theater person in high school. Like you didn't do plays at your high school, right? No, I kind of thought I was going to, and I auditioned for one. I didn't like the part I got. I got some little parts, and I just didn't do that again. Oh, that's <laughs> and, funny. And uh, and I just was like, well, I'm already doing this thing with my sister's theater company, so that was like enough for me. I think like I was interested in uh, doing play stuff, and like I was like shooting plays uh, with, with video production in school, and then I was like, no, I can't do it. I'm a football player. Like I can't like audition for plays. And then one of my football player guys auditioned for a play, and I think he got it, and then like did it, and then I was like, oh, well, I could do it. And then I was like more interested in like partying and girls and being a stupid kid than caring about trying to audition for a play i probably should have cared you can more. be in plays and like girls i know but you know it was like you know i was i don't know i was just a stupid idiot teenager man you remember how stupid i was back no, then you were a good good guy what was i a good about? guy i like trying to get drunk all the time and like do stupid shit i don't know i just felt like that was more important to me than than trying to be in a play i don't know at the i time. think also when i started making these video stuffs uh, is like, I thought I was going to act in them too. So like, you know what I mean? And then that was another thing is like, and like, um, talking to my older cousin, Mike was like, Oh, and like realizing there's like a director in the, in the, and that's maybe, and then 
more important. But my early like high school films, I was I was always in them too, and then it started to be more interested in me, more interesting to me to to not yeah. be in them and just direct them. You were in them for a, a long time, and you were like, weren't you at one point thinking about being in the short version of your feature, and then you just decided not to at the last minute or something? I don't think so. I think it was more like I'm the backup. Even in the feature, there were some roles oh, okay. that I was the backup for uh, if we couldn't okay. find anyone else that would like you know be okay and play that role right. for free. Because was it is it getting away? Was that the last one that you starred in of the shorts that you yeah, made? I guess so. But but for pe- people, just so like you know, so he's doing this at high in high school. He's making shorts, kind of like how we're young filmmakers are making shorts now or whatever. But this was like before film or d- digital film was a thing. So he was shooting these on film. So like you made one zombie movie on mini DV, right? Like the um, yeah. Gravekeeper, Gravedigger, Gravekeeper. Right. But I think that you could like it was all like mini DV and stuff, and you could. Um, it just wasn't great like now where things look good. So to me, and I think because of like realizing everyone that I was into, they all started by making Super 8 stuff. And I just thought that was kind of a cooler look than, uh, you know, SD video. So then I just did that. Yeah, and you made two or three shorts on on film. Is that right? You made like Getting yeah, Away was one. Yeah, I made two shorts on Super 8 and one on 16. Okay, wow. And then... It was getting away super eight, yeah, and then and then you did the blood loss short. On We're talking 16. about these these like they're anything like a like they're they're not terrible, which they are. <laughs> and B like there's something like anyone would have any interest in. I, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's interesting that like you are making these things. Like you're basically like we talked about this before. Like you're you're doing you did what I am doing now in my mid 20s like late 20s early 30s you did that when you were in your teens basically not like you really made short, you made short films and then you went and you raised fifty thousand dollars to make a feature i'm like basically okay. doing the same version of that now except i'm trying to raise way more money than that you know right. um well, but i'm basically I think you're doing it better than me Am I? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, your short films are better than the short films I made in high school. Yes. And, I mean, uh, maybe. I mean, and, Getting Away is know, pretty maybe good. Maybe the future will work better. I think you're, you don't give Getting Away enough credit. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty good one. I thought that really came together nicely. And your feature is mm-hmm. good, too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Anyways, I think, you know, you're right. We did talk about this a lot, you know, on the other episode, so we could talk about that. So basically, long of short of it. You know, you made a bunch of short films, you raised money for a feature, you did that, you faced the same problems that everyone else did. No talent in your in your lead role or what? at all, really. Careful. Um, uh, no name talent. <laughs> oh, okay, I see what you're saying. No uh, name talent. Yeah, it was hard, right. No names in the movie, and so it was hard to, uh, to, to sell. I mean, uh, everyone knows Tony Kitchen, Tony Summers, and you know, you know, those uh, guys are great. I mean, but no, it's just they they weren't famous people. That's what I'm trying uh, to say. Right? Um, yeah, uh, did not have a kind of you know got some distribution. It's still on Amazon Prime. Uh, none of that money is going to me because we got a uh, a jerk face sales agent, um, and uh, never made its money back. It's grossed, you know, I think I went over this last time we talked, it's it's grossed something like $30,000, maybe more because Bruce Forgeri never sends uh, right. any financial statements. 
but but I never saw any of that, and my investors never saw any of that. Right. So then, once the movie's out in the world and whatever, you know, it's got its distribution deal. It wasn't what you expected it to be. Um, just talk to us what what happened there as, in your filmmaking life. Well, by the time I was like finished that movie, then I was like twenty two. And actually, by the time we were done with the whole distribution end of it, like finally secured like a domestic distrib- distribution and stuff, and like it, it came out in a few places, including like Blockbuster Online back then and stuff, uh, I was like probably like 24. Um, right. So then I, it's like you have to like be like making money and stuff. <laughs> right. You have um, to like provide for yourself as right. a person. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, I guess that's where, like, you know, figuring out what people will actually pay you for, since no one was lining up to pay me to direct then, and then that kind of got into this world of, um, doing corporate video stuff, which you had kind of gotten into before me and helped me kind of get started in. Um, right. And then, um, as a result of that, I did a bunch of work for this guy, Tim Draper, who's a, you know many times millionaire, maybe even billionaire venture capitalist. Uh, yeah. That was through a job you got me. Yeah. Which then became like your thing. And then you ended up hiring me on those jobs later, which was really great, which, <laughs> which, right. which goes to show you if you get your friends work, then they end up like getting you work back later, <laughs> you know, right. so spread the wealth people. <laughs> um, so, uh, the thing is, the building blocks of a lot of the corporate videos are like the same building blocks. They're a lot more similar to documentary work than they are, you know what I mean? Like interviews and B-roll and that kind of stuff than they are to uh, fictional narrative filmmaking. Right. And then Tim Draper, this guy, was asking me about who I know that could make a full-length documentary about him, basically. And I was like, I know me. Um, yeah, and you like pitched yourself pretty hard, right? And he just went for it. Yeah, basically that's what happened. And so then I made this documentary for him that had like a budget of like one hundred twenty thousand dollars, which is tiny by you know even compared to like you know whatever some little PBS documentary or something would be like half a million dollars. Like right, but that's like double. But it was a lot of money to me. Yeah, I thought. Yeah. So that was like I don't know what was I like. 26, 27 at that point. Yeah. And, um, and that took like two years, right, to do that whole process? Yeah. Yeah. For, and then um, it was okay. You know, and it wasn't really like fully my documentary. In some ways, I felt more like a ghost writer. Um, well, you were like a gun for hire. Me, kind of, but he also gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, right. Even though it kind of had to be kind of what he wanted. and But... So it was interesting. I think kind of neither of us were totally happy in the end. <laughs> you know what I that's, mean? That's funny. Um, but he took it, and he never really distributed it, but I think it, it gets shown to people who come to his school that he created. Right. It's like part of the orientation at his school, right? Watching right. This, your movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's a, it's kind of like a bummer for you in a way, though. I mean, because part of making a movie as a young filmmaker is getting it out in the world and getting it seen and being able to show people that you made this movie and that it's not really out in the world in a big way kind of isn't the best solution, right? Yeah. 
Actually, I think maybe I might have thought that at the time. I feel like right now I'm kind of happy with it. Oh, because, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> because it's not fully mine. You know what I mean? It's not like here, make it about whatever you want. Like kind of my next two documentaries after that have been. And so uh, I think it works out well enough. I kind of wish that he had like budgeted me or somebody else to make like a cool trailer for it because there was never even that. And then that was somewhere. So I could at least point to that. Right. Um, I mean, you could make that trailer if you wanted, right? Like there's no, no reason why you don't, you couldn't do that. Uh, I could edit a trailer, but like, you don't, you want like motion graphics and things that are cooler than I could do. Like, I'm not going to call in favors to make a free trailer for this (laughs) university documentary. Right. You could also do like more of a simplistic trailer. Like, you know, I think a lot of trailers don't have fancy graphics like that. They just, you know, have titles. I mean, that's why like on my website, I just chose a little like three minute chunk of the movie and just put that there. Like, okay, here's an excerpt. It's not a trailer. Right. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I suppose if I, I, yeah. So during this whole time with the Draper documentary and like before that, were you ever thinking about making another feature? Was that ever like a big part of what you were doing? You mean a fictional? Yeah, film? fictional, like, you know, story. Yeah. Like, I think narrative. I assumed I would make another one. And I assumed that until, I don't know, a few years ago. And I did. I try. you know, I had, I had worked on a few different scripts, even one with you, um, with, I mean, by myself with other collaborators. I had an opportunity to like pitch some to this like Hollywood producer guy I got connected to, but he, and I had to come up with like three different little, th- I wrote like three different little short treatments for, for him with another guy. And none of those went anywhere. Not that like, it wasn't like I gave it the full go of like moving to LA or anything, but I just mean like there were like other things that came up and I thought that would happen. But then, it kind of never did, and it kind of uh, seemed like it was going to be so hard to raise a bunch of money again. Uh, right. You're kind of like I back did. at square one in a way. Yeah. And like, okay, I could see all the problems the first time around, and like how am I solving those problems uh, if I just do the same thing again? So, you know, and it's like, so then I was kind of never satisfied with any of the scripts that I had kind of worked on with people after that or um, in, in my own work on them. Um, and didn't yeah, like really you never see found something. To, yeah, to really, like I, I couldn't convince myself again. It's like the first time I didn't know what was going to go wrong. And so it was easy to convince myself, okay, do this, just figure it out, scrounge the last $12,000 on credit cards, you know, whatever it takes. Uh but it was hard to convince myself to do that a second time. Uh, or I, at least I told myself, like, I'd never found the, whatever it was, uh, story or whatever. I never, I never believed enough. I never had the energy again quite the same way to, to do that. And after finishing Tim Draper's documentary, it seemed like, okay, I could do this, though. Like, this seems uh, more feasible. And it right. didn't really feel like a, like a consolation either it was like i was excited like you know as i got older like making uh you know exploring some non-fiction topic or person uh seemed every bit uh, or as interesting to me or more interesting than like trying to make another like shoot 'em up uh movie right. which i've kind of lost interest in those kind of movies 
Right. Like, you really need to be passionate about... Right. I mean, you don't even watch those movies anymore. Like, you used to watch those movies all the time. Like, that's not, like, who you are, really. Right. Um, But, anyways... The last Western thing was the greatest movie I've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah. That was fun. Um, But what I wanted to say was, like, you really have to, like, be super jazzed and excited about the thing that you're going to make. And I wonder... If after you make one big thing, like it, it gets harder to get excited about it in the, in the next one. And like each time you make something, it's harder and harder to get excited about the next project. You know, uh, I definitely noticed that with some of my previous guests. Like, you know, they make their first feature so super hard. Then they like, you know, get up the energy to make their second one. It's super duper hard. Then like, you know, getting the third one. And it's like they're still trying to figure out what the third one's going to be because you know, of all the experience they have making the other two movies, they know it's like, you know, all the things they're going to face and then just being excited enough to put that much energy into something, you know, because, yeah, it's like you give your life to the project, basically, for X amount of years, you know? Um, Yeah, I mean, if there's not other opportunity, if there's not something about it, but just kind of repeating the same thing, you know, and I think that's what kind of documentary stuff has been for me so far. It's like diff- very different, and it's some other opportunity. And it's so, not like, and there there are things that could happen that would make it not repeating the same thing. Right, didn't happen for me. Right, and make them happen. Right, but like, so before the Draper, Draper documentary, like, were you thinking about documentaries at all, or did that just kind of come, and then that was sort of what started this whole path for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like, there were documentaries I liked, or but, um, actually, um, no, I had, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. Well, I mean, I think it, I think it wasn't, basically. No, I mean, actually, after we made Day of Vengeance, the first thing we want, we actually, me, uh, Mike and Sebastian, who are my collaborators on that film, thought it'd be really interesting to make a documentary about the town itself that we made that movie in because of like they're you know kind of moving to this weed economy or had moved to it but it was becoming legal after it had been illegal for 30 years and so we did start making that documentary and mike was directing that because i was so busy on post-production um with day of vengeance and i remember being a little jealous thinking like oh man i want to direct that i wish but i was just helping produce it Right, right. Yeah, but I mean... just being a short little Well, what, what, what I mean is, like, after the Draper documentary, like, you would have, like, a couple lists of, like, potential ideas for documentaries. And, like, you were, like, what about this thing about this football player that you met through the Draper thing? And, like, then there were some music ideas, and I don't really remember how Fred came into the picture, but I just remember you going through this brainstorming period after Draper. Right, But you okay. weren't doing that beforehand. Right, I would, that, I would say that's true. Before that making that Draper documentary, I was, it was still working on like scripts and things, thinking I would do a fictional thing after that. And then after making that, I was thinking I'll just stick with nonfiction for a while here. Right. Which is a bummer to me because like I was just finding myself as a filmmaker. Like I think I had just maybe shot Strange Thing or was going through that process or whatever. And you helped me on that movie. And, you know, we, you had like that, the zombie thing and the, or the wolf, the wolf man thing or whatever. And then there was a couple other scripts that you had thrown around that were really cool. And yeah, I was like super excited for you to do that after the Draper documentary. And then you, that just wasn't your interest. And it was like, you just went in this different direction, which I think is great. But I mean, I don't know. 
Like, I would love to see the next Isaac Pingree narrative movie, you know, whether yeah. it be a horror or action or a yeah. comedy or whatever. Nobody needs know? that. No one needs that? No. <laughs> I th- I don't know. The Par- the Paraguay, uh, you know, horror movie would be great. And no, I, think I don't think you it should will make be it that either. No? I mean, I don't think, think so? necessarily. Well, yeah, no, it doesn't. I, certainly doesn't. I think it needs to be made. Or it should be made. Someone should make it. You should make it. Is nah, what I'm trying to say. I don't think so. But uh, thank no. you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, all right. So, anyways, um, talk to us about after the Draper documentary, like what your process and, and, and your sort of head was at about making your next documentary. Yeah, I guess so. I had figured out how I could make a documentary and I, how I could, how that could be like an affordable thing that I could do myself. Um, and I had just made one, but it was about what this other guy was paying me to make one about. So then I kind of was working on what would I actually want to make one about for myself. And Fred Eaglesmith was uh, just a singer-songwriter who I'd really liked. And I'd always actually been into music documentary stuff. Actually, I think, you know, in like high school when I was getting into movies and stuff and then watching Scorsese movies and then seeing The Last Waltz, I remember that movie really blew my mind. It's still one of my favorite movies. And so like even since then, I was always really into concert movies and had done uh you know even with you stuff for our like our our musician friends so uh blind willies is a band you and i both have done stuff for right right was a friend of mine from college alexi walkman that was his band and then and then in that same period i think of while i was doing the draper documentary i did that one film uh short music documentary petty troubles that you worked on with me too about uh, Matt Montgomery yeah. making this whole album with a whole orchestra in one day. Yeah, those are fun to make those things, you know? Shooting music is so much more fun than shooting, like, an interview. You know? <laughs> it's just so much more interesting, and there's just, I don't know, I enjoy it. Was it was like I, cheating in a lot of ways, because the soundtrack of a movie is so important, and then there you get the soundtrack built in. So uh, Fred was somebody I'd seen a few times live, and uh, he seemed approachable. It wasn't, it's not like I'm just writing a letter to Bruce Springsteen. Dear Mr. Springsteen, I'm interested in making a documentary about you. Um, but it seemed like I could write one to Fred Eaglesmith. <laughs> right. Even though I, to, even that was like, you know, obviously he was still like, I was somebody I was like really nervous to talk to when he like told right. me to call him and stuff. Was, was that the first letter to a musician that you wrote about a documentary with Fred Eaglesmith? It's possible. Uh, probably. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's I think right. so. Yeah, I think it was your first subject that you approached, because then after Fred, obviously, we'll get to that. But but yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you, like, you know, you have this, this subject and you, like, approach him. And then, like, talk to us about how you approached writing the letter and, like, how you sent it to him and, and how you went about all that. I don't know. I wrote him a letter, but I wrote him like a real letter because I thought he would appreciate that. So like not an email. And I sent it because he's always on tour just to the next place that he was going to go. Or like I gave myself kind of a one week buffer or something. But then he did he call you? Is that his response? No, he had a publicist email me back. Ah, uh, yeah. And right, then I right. kind of pitched her on it some more. And then eventually I went and met him in, in Nashville. Oh, right. So that's you first met him in Nashville. That was the first time that you saw him in person. Yeah, I talked to him on the phone. Oh, okay. Before that. Awesome. Yeah. So then, 
Well, since you talked about Fred a lot on the last episode, let's kind of speed through that and sort of get to, like, where the cliffhanger that you left us on the last episode, I think, was, like, you had got it um, out in the world, like, it was being sold on his merch table. You had made, like, some money you had seen back, but it was unclear to you how much you were actually going to see. But now it's, like, years later, and so you have all the stats. Like, do you want to just give us the stats of, like, what you ended up getting back on that documentary? Yeah. So, so yeah, made that movie, uh, you know, on a very small budget, uh, and it's just like, you know, a little over an hour long and just, you know, there was kind of like, we could keep going and try and turn this thing into bigger, or we could just be like, yeah, this is enough and his fans will enjoy it. And I liked it too. So then, uh, yeah, we printed off a thousand DVDs and began selling them on his website and merch table and we have made our money back and a little bit more um but the the sales from that started to uh have really kind of flattened in the last year it was kind of like the first like three to six months all of you know the fans that wanted a dvd bought a dvd so so do you still see checks at all or yeah um but not much, like in the range of, you know, maybe like, I don't know, $100 a month or less. Hey, man, that's still $100 that you wouldn't have. I guess less. But still, I mean, come on. To put it in perspective, I have made zero money on any of the movies that I've made. And like producer, director, whatever, you know? Right. Um, and I right. put thousands into them so that, you that know. movie made its its money back and a little more it didn't make enough money to live on no but i mean would you expect it to no but that is the idea of what we're doing right the goal here for all of us is right. to to make the projects we want and for those projects to pay our bills which is a you know right. a goal not everyone achieves but that's that's yeah. our goal here right most people don't achieve i would say right yeah <laughs> um all right. Well, that, but that's still, so you have to say a success. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. And I hadn't yet done any uh, streaming release on that last time, which might be interesting to get into because I was planning to do it a lot sooner, but we kind of kept going with just the hard copies. And then only recently we went through our, uh, Film Hub, which was formerly called Kino Nation, Um which is kind of like an aggregator kind of place, kind of like distributor, and I don't know what others there are. But they kind of tell you what they need, and then they convert it into whatever formats the various streaming platforms want, and then uh, they do their best to get it on those platforms, and then they kind of have a little portal where you can kind of see how much money it's making, and they take 20% and you get 80%. So I'm only like a month into that on the Fred movie. So right now, do you have any numbers from that at all, or no? Yeah, I mean, like it's made just over a dollar on Amazon Prime in in a a month. And how many? But we've done no promotion on that. So, but how many views is that? Yeah, they don't break it down on this. I would like to know. Oh, they don't. So, like, I'm like, am I getting eight cents a view, or am I getting like, you know, half a penny a view? Uh, right. I'm not. Uh, I'm not certain of that yet. But it's so few. It's so little 
the data points are so few, and it's it's going to be on more platforms still. I think so. Um, we'll see. Uh, maybe it'll become wow. more clear to me, or maybe I'll start getting more info on these statements, exactly how that works. But but I'm not sure even because I just see that as because that's all Amazon Prime. Like like if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. And if you don't, right. it costs you ninety nine cents or a dollar ninety nine or whatever. I don't know if anyone's done that. Right. I don't know if like do I make one? Presumably, I would make one amount from that and one amount that's much much smaller when people yeah, from Prime the are watching it. Prime views. Like if I yeah. just loop it at my house on Prime, am I making two cents every time? I don't. I don't know the answers to uh, to these questions yet. I wonder if you get more money if the same person watches it over and over again right. or if it like gets less and less each time that person watches it or if each person only can get one view in i, I don't know as i'd love to hear the answers to these questions but i think they keep all this information close to their chests you know just because they can and they don't have to tell anybody really you know? i mean i feel like this would be pro because i actually i think it was even discussed once on I forget what episode it was, but you had some documentary filmmaker on who had their movie on Hulu, and I think they said it was twelve cents or eight cents per right. person who watches the whole thing on Hulu. So I, I, I feel like I will be able hour. to find this. Okay, I feel like I'll be able to find this number. It might. It's just not like maybe it's not listed on my statement. Yeah, but what I mean mean is like you know. Like do, do like do we know if the same person watching it over and over again is it just eight cents oh. each time, you know? And Amazon would have to release that information, and I feel like Amazon and Netflix are just like not interested in sharing the, all this data with us. I don't know. They, they, I mean, maybe they don't release themselves. it publicly, but would they? I would think that Film Hub or very whatever sales agent, like I would think that is what whoever because like I'm not signing any agreement. I'm just signing an agreement with Film Hub. Right. So, like, whoever is signing the agreements, whether it's, like, sales agents or, um, or organizations like that, I would think they would, they would know exactly what the breakdown is. From my understanding, Netflix doesn't share that data with anybody. So, like, they don't tell anyone ever, no matter who you are, like, what view, how many views things get. Like, they just keep that information private for themselves. But then and how so, do you audit whether, I mean, if I guess if they're paying you in, in, in like for a lump sum yeah. up front, then they don't have to. But if they're paying you based on views, then they that has to be auditable in some way. No, they don't, though. I think that's the thing. It's like they don't, they just, they just, they basically give you no leverage. They have all the leverage in the, in the deal because they don't have to share that data because of whatever their bullshit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I'd love a Netflix person to come on the show and talk to us about this and give us some insight. But, I mean, again, that doesn't seem to be part of their uh, business model is to share insight with people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, maybe an Amazon person is more willing. I don't know. Eh, it, it, who knows? Um, but, uh, but yeah. Or that, a film that, hub cool. person might be interesting. Yeah, because you, that's person. more like you're actually doing something for the. You know what I mean? Like that's a site where, like, right? Like, Amazon and Netflix really don't care about like your audience per se, but Film Hub, like your audience, potentially has a lot of people that could submit their movies to them. Yeah, I met one of the main people at Distributor. Um, he also is a podcaster too, and he has, uh, you know, but he's like the main, like, uh, I don't know what his title is, like. VP or you know CEO or CEO or some I don't know what his deal is I don't think he's a CEO but he's like one of the main dudes at Distributor 
And I'm sure, you know, he actually asked to come on the podcast, but I felt like it would be like an advertisement podcast and not really, not really them giving a lot of information. So I don't know, but I should reach out to him and see like how much information he has or that he'd be willing to share with our right. audience because I think that kind of stuff would be would be useful. Um, all right, so Fred's out in the world, um, physical and in digital, which is great. Uh, and I mean, that must be awesome for you too, right? Because now, like, when you you want to share the movie, you can point to the Amazon link, and that's got that that's a pretty cool thing, right? Yeah. Actually, so yes, I'm I'm really happy that that film is on Amazon Prime. We discussed this um, with Jesse. Oh, except that hasn't uh, this this episode has not. This will come out first. (laughs) Like the the like the uh, I don't know whatever. How useful it is when when something you can actually show something, right? Uh, And and what is like looking professional, right? Like having it on a website where people recognize that the distributor. Versus like right. being professional, which is like making money. And in this instance, like <laughs> I'm making less money on Amazon Prime than on selling it on Fred's website. But to the world, it looks more professional or looks better if, right. uh, if it's on Amazon Prime. The other thing that's nice about it is being feeling done with that project. It's like there's nothing more for me to do now. Like he can, we can right. sell more DVDs, and it can be on Amazon Prime, and hopefully money will continue to trickle in from it. Right, and I'm done with it. Whereas even on Day of Vengeance, I don't feel fully done because I'm getting ripped off by Bruce for Jerry, uh, the distributor guy, the sale, the domestic sales well, agent. When does that deal end? It already ended. It was a seven-year deal, so it went from 2010 to 2017. But the movie's still on Amazon Prime, which means he's collecting money. And he hasn't sent me a financial statement since, like, 2012, even though he was supposed to, like, send them quarterly throughout the whole uh, thing. But it's like there's not enough... uh, There's not enough uh, juice in the orange to squeeze. Like, hiring a lawyer to sue him would cost more than whatever I'm going to collect from him. And it's like, okay, so I could like write some cease and desist thing. And then like, he has to like, and then what, I don't know what he has to take it off Amazon and quit collecting whatever pennies he's making from that. But it's like, then what good does that do me? Then it's not on Amazon. And I'm still not making any money. But then you can put it on Amazon yourself. But how do I do that? I have to then try and make go get go through it's, film it's, again. It's really it's really easy to do it. Yeah, um, but I gotta. I'm trying to you know pay my bills right. here and you know. <laughs> right. Well, I'm saying you don't even have to go through Film Hub. You can just put. You can submit it to Amazon Prime yourself. Right. You know, directly now. So right. I feel like yeah. those are all like things in the back of my head. Like okay, someday it'd be nice to figure that stuff out and do all that. Right. But in the meantime, right. it's like. You know, I got a long checklist and to-do list of other stuff and a current project and, you know, but, but that's where it's nice. That's like, okay, for the Freddie Gossman thing, it's done. I'm happy with it. I'm happy with where it's landed in the world. Beautiful. Cool. Right. Okay. So, so talk to us about after Fred, like, you know, you had this documentary, you, you were pretty happy about the process making it and you like the final product and everything. And so you're like, okay, like let's do more. Like I want to do more documentaries. So what did you do at this point? 
Well, I think kind of the key thing to the Fred thing looking like it could be a sustainable model for my filmmaking is that Fred is the name. So, like, the reason it was able to make its money back in the first six months or whatever, or year, is because Fred has fans, not because I have fans. I don't have right. fans, obviously. Right. So Not yet. Um, so, so it was like, okay, so that works. If I make a documentary about, like, it has to be something I also am a fan of and I also want to make a documentary about. But if I make a documentary about something with a built something or someone with a built-in fan base then uh, maybe this is financially feasible, too. Right. And so I reached out to a few, to other people who I thought would make interesting documentary subjects who had that some of that built-in name recognition and received uh, various responses, ranging from no response to warm no thank yous. Right. Uh, and so, by the way, I love a warm no thank you. That's all I want. If I get a warm no thank you, it's almost as good as if they said yes. It's like they're recognizing me as a human being that's worth their time, and they're politely saying they'd rather do something else. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I actually got a warm no thank you from Anthony Mackey's manager or agent the other day. Like I was asking about trying to get him the script, and they're like, yeah, that's great, but no, you know, and it was just a really nice response and saying that you could, I could make a pay or play offer if I wanted to, but uh, but you know, like it was just it was just nice. It was like a human response from an agent, yeah, which I didn't. That's think, totally fair. And yeah, like, if you do that, yeah. But usually that's not what you, and that's not my experience. It's usually like no, or they never get back to you, or they don't respond at all. Usually don't resp- respond at all. That's been my experience, you know. So it was nice. Um, anyways, continue. So. You sent a few of these out, but then how does Bob Frank come into the picture? He had kind of been on my mind because I had seen him live at some point in like 2014. I thought it was an interesting story. My friend Jonah Walkman of the Jonah Kit took me to see him. and But he's kind of so cult that uh, there, isn't the, uh, there isn't the built-in fan base. You know what I mean? Uh, not enough that could... Uh, where you could make your money back, or that you could count on making your money back on a film. Right, but that didn't really matter, though. Well, sure, I decided it didn't matter. But at right. first, I was kind of trying to aim for a, a, a person or a topic where there seemed to be, uh, where uh, which seemed a little more commercial. Um, do, you, do you want to talk not, about some of the people that you reached out to? or no? Not really. I mean, okay, there's well, no reason to know. I don't know, because I think people. what if one of those people hear the show and are like, oh, <laughs> I didn't get that message? Or what if, like, somebody who works for one of those people or knows them, you know, listens to this and then they're like, oh, yeah, I think he actually might be open or she might be open to that. So I think you should name them. But uh, it's your choice, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> This is like a very good example of the very different personalities that we have. You know, like I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, get it out there. And you're like, no, keep it to myself. You know, it's fine. Hey, everyone different. Yeah. Anyways. I don't know. I feel like I haven't really uh, done like the analysis, like the cost benefit analysis of that where I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'll reach out to those people again in the future and maybe calling them out like 
is is not a it's not a great idea. But why um, is it? But you're not even saying anything bad about them. You're just saying I reached out to them. I'd love to make a movie about them or with them. You know, it's not right. okay. Well, like, I got oh, warm no thank yous in the category of people. I got warm no thank yous from was uh-huh. uh, John Prine and Kinky Friedman. I, I got right. warm no thank yous from their management. Um, and I mean, I don't know how many listeners know who these people are, but I mean, both very talented musicians with big fan bases of their own, you know, especially right. John Prine. I mean, John Prine, you could almost John say. John Prine is like, like having the biggest moment of his career right now. And this, so this yeah. was, uh, this just, that happens to me. That's what it seems like to me. But I feel like that happens to guys like when they're really old, people are like, oh no, they're going to be gone in a few years and then finally <laughs> kind of give them the, the love that maybe they should have got for the. Yeah. Well, I've got like six that. John Prine LPs, like dating back to like the eighties or maybe even seventies. I don't know, but uh, so I feel like someone like that is like that's like a career musician, like borderline famous. I would say famous. He's famous, musician. sure. Yeah, famous. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, anyways, uh, so John Prine, if you're out there, Isaac would love to make a documentary. They already know that. They gave me a warm no thank you, and he we corresponded. He doesn't necessarily know that because you okay, don't know. First that of all, his person... he doesn't listen to your podcast. Well, secondly, he this maybe is the his point. daughter does or his son no, or you the, know. the point is there. They, they, <laughs> I name those people. You know, even they, like they have like a specifically no solicited materials or no right. unsolicited materials on their website, but like said right. I could send them a copy of my Fred you know dvd right. and things like that. like they were great to deal with they're and yeah, they're exactly what you expect because he seems like an awesome guy and yeah. so up and down his uh organization there you it's know it's people awesome. with uh good people yeah yeah okay back to the to the bob frank then so you he was on your list you you were aware of him you were pretty sure that he didn't have a big fan base and that it wasn't going to really be something you could sell but you're like this is interesting enough i want to approach this guy so what do you do then i wrote him an email Nice. <laughs> and and how that. long did it take for him to get back to you? Uh, like a, a day. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I think uh, that's amazing, you know. And Bob Frank, let's not undersell at all here, but he um, uh, is a singer-songwriter, and he was kind of around in, in Nashville mostly in the late 60s, early 70s, and then got signed by Vanguard Records, which is kind of a famous folk label, folk blues, kind of jazz, various stuff out of New York. And did this one album in 1972 for them, and then for a variety of reasons, ended up uh, not making another album for 30 years and and working uh, for the park department more or less in Oakland, California. Yeah, and and how much about him did you know when you wrote that email? I didn't know. I know that you know he had this one out. I had the album. I know that like he made this one album. And then kind of had like kind of, you know, dropped off the out of the music business after that. And I had been told that he was like working as a plumber or something like that. And, and, uh, and which which wasn't exactly right, but kind of the, a little bit of the gist of the story. I had like read the liner. Note. You know, the album had been reissued in 2014 by Light in the Attic Records. Oh, okay. And, and had you heard his other music cause at this time or had you just really heard that one album? I had really only listened a lot to that one album, but I tried it. But, you know, once I decided I was going to email him, then it's like, okay, I went online and, and listened to all the rest of it that I could find. Nice. Um, so to talk to us about what happened and like, what was his response 
and let's take us through the steps from there. I didn't really pitch him on like a, a whole big feature-length movie necessarily. It was more like, hey, maybe we could do something together. You want to get together and talk about it? And so he just said like, yeah, sure. And I think he watched a couple of the videos I had sent him and said, you know, cool. You look like you can make a video or whatever. Um, right. <laughs> and so then we met uh, for a beer, although he didn't have one. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'm sold. This guy's so funny and charismatic. And like, you know, this is, this is going to be this will be something. But I still wasn't sure whether it was going to be a short or a feature or whatever. And then I just started shooting with him. And I don't know. Also, so I, I decided like not to care. Because right. since it wasn't going to be, uh, you know what I mean? Since the, 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 the point was no longer like, yes, this is, this is going to work. And here's how the numbers are all going to line up. And at this point, it was just like, God, I'm just doing corporate type stuff I don't care about. I want to be making something else that I care about. So it was like whether this is 10 minutes or an hour and 10 minutes or whether it's like exists in some no man's land and it's like 35 minutes and nobody wants a 35 minute movie except for, you know, you know, 300 Bob Frank fans on Vimeo who get to watch it for free, then fine. I don't care. Whatever. I am enjoying this. So when you guys met for the beer, where'd you guys meet? Just at a bar somewhere or? Yeah. Brewery in Richmond. Okay. And then, so... Like, that was, like, sort of him figuring you out and you figuring him out, right? Like, you know, just to sort of see if you could actually work together. And, like, did he ask you a bunch of questions? Like, did you ask him a bunch of questions? Like, how easy was it to convince him to let you start shooting? Oh, very easy. <laughs> uh, he was just, I he was was just okay of, with it? Kind of more or less, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, and but he's gone back and forth on that over the time. We've <laughs> right, right. Uh, but like, did but did like you ever like ask him like, oh, well, would you want to make a music video? Would you want to do yeah. this? Or did you? Did you? Yeah, like- we talked about that. Like, kind of what it could be. I was like, oh, we could just maybe do a thing where we just do one song and we just focus on that song, or we kind of. Um, but it turned into something much more, uh, more typical, I guess. So the next time you saw him, was it you going to his house with your camera to yeah. to shoot some stuff? Yeah. And and walking into that day, like, what was the plan? And, like, what did you expect out of that? I think I didn't put too much pressure on it. I was going to interview him about uh, kind of the topics I was interested in. And then I was going to ask him to play a few songs. And then I was going to see what what I thought after that. And, like... When you met with him for the beer, like, what kind of questions did you ask him? Like, did you learn a lot more about his story when you had that beer with him? Or was it more like just, like, regular get-to-know-you stuff? Yeah, no get-to-know-you. Just questions, just business, but then you get to know through that, I guess. I mean, not business, but, you know, yeah. So, so, but I guess the question is, like, how much of your story that's in the documentary did you learn about during that first drinking of a beer? Um, a lot of it in terms of the history part of it, you know, the, fir- the, uh, the first third of the movie is just kind of retelling what happened in the sixties and seventies. And he kind of covered all that. Um, wow. Know. So you kind of, it was like, so it was like more like a pre-interview than just like a getting to know you thing. Like you kind of were learning like what the content of the story would be 
Yeah, right. but that was just it has it, and that's how the way it worked out because those are my those are my questions. Like, hey, this is what I heard about you, or this is what I've been able to gather. What of this is true, or or what actually happened then? Or okay, that's interesting. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I had a little notebook that I brought, and uh, so I wasn't thinking of it as a pre-interview, but I was kind of asking about his his history, kind of in the music business and then out of the music business and then kind of back in and how that all happened, trying to figure out where the where the, the focus of a documentary might be. Yeah. And so when you did that shoot, like, was the first thing you did the interview? Like, you just sit him down in a nice-looking spot in his house and turn the camera on and just see what happens? Yeah. And then... And... During, <laughs> okay. Uh, this is just a not important side note at all. That was uh, in between, I guess, the Fred movie and this movie. I had watched uh, with you, or at least some of it with you, that Werner Herzog right. masterclass on the uh, oh, right. Yeah, And yeah, then yeah. he makes fun of interviewers that do it with a piece of paper in front of them. Oh, yeah. So then that was my first time, and now I'm like, you know, two documentaries in or whatever. But that was the, that was the first interview. I'm like, all right, if this is the way... Uh, Herzog says to do it, where I was just like, okay. I mean, I had written questions earlier, you know, it was like what I wanted to ask and what I wanted to cover, but then to be like, okay, no notes during the conversation, just to actually have a conversation. So was that the first time that you made a movie like that or a documentary like that? Where yeah, you that was the first time notes? I conducted an interview like that, I think. I mean, wow. I probably did when I was actually talking to like uh, Fred's... Um, band members but that right. was because it was like one question it was like how did you end up in Fred's band yeah you know? yeah yeah so when you did that did you feel like you really enjoyed that um experience of you know doing the interviews without notes and just like ask just making it a conversation not really because I mean I mean I would like to do that <laughs> and I would like to I mean I'm still doing that on all the interviews in this documentary but I would like to do that on a documentary where I have a a, a little crew because the setup for just about everything in this documentary is right. Like I, I either put them in a place that looks good enough without lights or I light it and then I mic them and I set up the camera and it's like, there's still a lot to monitor. So you're still not really, I'm, I'm not fully there as much as Herzog would like me to be because I'm also like checking levels and making sure that when they adjust themselves in their seat, that it's still in focus and, you know, the right. framing still looks good and blah, blah. Right. So you, you're doing it, you did all, all of them without notes, but you still, you're distracted because you have to, you know, right. you're the camera operator, the sound person, you're the, you know, the producer, all the things, right. you know, as well as the director, basically. Um, so that first, uh, so I've seen this Bob Frank documentary, like the rough cuts a bunch and... Um, and it's not that, done, so I don't know how much useful it is. Like, is this no. a better conversation to have if, like, you could share the? Link? I don't know. I think it's really interesting to talk about things while they're in process. Like, I feel like people always interview, you know, filmmakers like after their movies are done, released, had the festival premiere, have come out, whatever. And I feel like once you're at that point, like you have a very different perspective on your movie than you did when you're making it. So I actually like the fact that you're still shooting footage now and you're still figuring out like the edit and all that stuff. I think it's more interesting to discuss these things at this point than it would be later. Uh, but what I'm trying to get at is like that first conversation you had with him, the first time you shot with him, that's like, you know what? 60% of the movie, 80% of the movie, no. roughly. No, wrong. <laughs> yeah. Way yeah. Wrong. 
way wrong. Way wrong. Well, the first cut that you showed me it was. Yeah, okay. The first cut I showed you it was. But that's the meat of the whole story is what I'm getting at. It's like the whole That narrative. is still a very important part is that first interview. Correct. But I would say it's more like 20% of the movie. It's really? It's not 20%, is it? Yeah. Really? I think so. I mean, I don't know. We could. You want me to pause this and go? <laughs> I don't like, know. I mean, yeah, I now feel there's like, like interviews with like yeah, you've you know, added a bunch a of interviews, other people, and there's but, full but music performances. Yeah, but their voices aren't louder or longer or bigger than him, his voice. There's other interviews with him. So right, twenty percent still a lot. I think it's more like forty. But I don't anyways. Think so. So whatever, it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying, it's just interesting to me, and I've always found this interesting about this movie is that like the big, you know, meat of it is from that very first shoot when you didn't even know what you were making. Like you just you just thought you were interviewing this guy, and like you would figure out what it was going to be later, and then it ended up being this feature length documentary from that 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 first interview. So I don't know. I just that's one of the things I like about documentary filmmaking. Is you just never know what what's going to happen. Right. I know? think also the first time you get things, they're better. My my what the the other process I've kind of developed through this, and I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of other ways to do it that work for different people. But is like when I talk to somebody on the phone to be like, oh, you know, whether it's like a music journalist or like a fan of his. You know, when I went to North Carolina and interviewed a bunch of fans, I'm just trying to pick out. I don't really even want to hear their whole story. Like I just, or like I just try to pick out whether I think they can tell a story or not. You know, when I was like choosing which fans to interview and which ones to not is like, like, do they seem kind of charismatic? They seem like they could tell a little anecdote because, uh, I feel like the first time you tell someone a story is better. Like if, if there's a punchline and they don't know how, and they know that I don't know it, they're going to deliver it better than if they know they already told it to me. Right. So I don't think that's the way everyone does. Maybe it's the way a lot of people do things. I know some people are like, want to know what it's going to be said first. And maybe even like, I've watched like Herzog behind the scenes stuff where he's even kind of like working with the, the, the person on camera, like make, make it a more dramatic telling of their story or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. But I like not knowing not no knowing less and so it's one of the reasons like i haven't redone that interview with him because i just think him telling me that stuff for the first time is better than if it was like well yeah but i have a fancier camera now let's do it again you know right yeah like we we've gotten as a team basically two new cameras since that cam that that interview you know both way better than the camera that we that you used to shoot that yeah um but it's i but i feel like you lit it really well. You exposed it correctly. You know, you picked a good spot for to put him, you know, and I feel like, you know, you watch that, you know, next to all the other footage with the better cameras and it doesn't really look any worse. It looks great. You know, I think it's mm-hmm. awesome. So I don't think there's any need for you to redo it just because you have a 4K camera now versus a 1080 camera. It's like, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the it's the craft that you use to capture. It that's important. Not the camera you know mm-hmm. um so like it's really interesting about this whole like 
getting it the first time because I feel that same way like just from like interviewing people for corporate videos like if, if the first time someone says something it's always better than it than when you have to have them repeat it later you know mm-hmm. uh, so it's always good to get it right the first time I was just talking to a filmmaker about this for for like a, a you know a narrative drama movie and like I kind of feel like sometimes there's something special about a performance and that's why I don't feel like over rehearsing is good because you can rehearse it to death and then you lose like some magic. And he basically completely disagreed with me. He felt like the more rehearsal you do, the better because then you can like get it perfect and then like it's repeatable. That same magic is repeatable every, as many times as you need it, you know? And I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah, I don't know. I think everyone's got a, just a different process and they can all kind of work. Right, right. But then I guess the director and the actor, it helps if they're uh, in agreement on what the good process is. Right, if they both think it's the right way, yeah. Um, all right, I have two more questions before we wrap this up. Um, what, like, through this process of making this Bob Frank movie, because what, you've been working on this for, like, a, a little over a year? or Yeah, a little over yeah. a year now, which is, again, you know, not like, I mean, probably most of the people on this podcast similar. Well, I don't know, actually. Well, I feel like mix. documentaries, yeah, like they take a while usually, don't they? Yeah, but in terms of like when you're working on something where it's like your full-time job or like you have funding for a project and so that it's what you, you can dedicate yourself to it fully. Right. And when it's like a self-funded thing that you're doing in between, you know, jobs that pay. I'd be really curious to know like what the percentage of documentaries made are, are passion projects or I don't know. I have a filmmaker friend who hates me saying passion project they just think it's like the worst okay well just all right uh self-funded is that better a self-funded project versus like a funded project and um probably most of them like it's easy to tell most of the ones we watch like unless you're at like little film festivals these are not self-funded things like i think most of these documentaries are, are are clearly made with you know lots of money yeah i guess so um with with backing of some kind I suppose. Mm. Um, all right. Well, anyways, so what's the biggest challenge that you faced in, in making this movie? Let's see. So I think there's the, the challenge I kind of we just hinted at, which is like the money thing, that I wish I could just work on this all the time. Then it could be done already, right? But I have to, like, uh, do the other stuff. Um, I think the other challenge is on this is just how open-ended it is. Um, as a story and as a project. Like, the Tim Draper thing is like eccentric venture capitalists creating this new venture, which is a school for entrepreneurs. Let's see what happens. But it's like, it gives it like a... There's, a, there's, a, there's kind of the built-in plot and timeline is like, can he do it? Can he create right. a school? And then he, the school opens and the movie ends and it's the, his struggle along the way, kind of. And the Fred one is like, well, I'm on the road with Fred for a little while, and like, let's see what happens. But then it's like, I can't be on the road with him forever. So here's here's a little window into life on the road with Fred Eaglesmith. But the Bob one, because he just lives 20 minutes away from me, uh, and because it's just whatever I want it to be, and there's no like big thing happening in his life, uh, it's it's like. His daughter asked me, like, when do you know you're finished? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't plan on working on it forever. 
But, uh, you know, for now it's still like, oh, maybe I'll shoot one more little thing here. Maybe I'll go, or would this story be better if we saw him doing this? Or would it be better if I got a couple more interviews of people talking about this and I can keep doing that? And right. so I think that's the hard part is kind of, uh, yeah, there's no yeah. one to really answer to. And there's no like, yeah, but after the big competition at the end, then it's over. It's just, so I just have to decide. I've always taken you as a kind of person who's pretty good at deciding when you're done with something, you know, like you either know it's not ready or you know it's ready. And maybe that's just the way that you present yourself. But I feel like with everything that you've done, you've always been pretty clear on when you feel like there's nothing else to do and nobody can change your mind once you've made your (laughs) mind up. Well, I like finishing things and I'm not a perfectionist. So like right now, I just feel like there are holes and gaps in my telling of the Bob Frank story. And I'm trying to get it to a spot where I like it more, you know? Right. Which I think is the way you should be. Like, you should be going off of whether you like it or not more than anything, you know, as as an artist, you know, and a filmmaker. And I think that's one of the things I've probably taken from you more is that, like, don't listen to the stupid notes you get from a million people. Like, just decide for your damn self, you know? Like, what do you like better, you know? Right. But where has that gotten me? <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, I, I like your work, so maybe that's enough. I don't know. Um, last question. I know you don't. I know there's the answer to this. I'm gonna ask it anyways. Uh, do you do you know what you're gonna do once Bob Frank is done? Like, do you have any idea of like the next artistic endeavor that you're gonna take 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 on? No. But my friend Paul Egas, who teaches film at a, a local high school, or video, I guess, uh, and other things. Uh, he's been getting really into making puppets. So we were talking about doing a uh, a puppet movie. <laughs> like a puppet documentary or like a no, puppet? I think we just wow. make like a little short film. So it really wouldn't be that big a thing. I don't know. Right. Uh, I'm just, I was just throwing that in because I thought it would uh, surprise you. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really surprise me that much because you've, you, you know, you and Paul Egas have a history of, uh, you know, coming up with ideas of projects to do together and then not doing them. That's so, true. Um, you know, like you had a web series thing you guys were going to do and there was like a feature film that you were going to be in that I don't know if he finished or not um, that I think you shot some stuff for, but, you know. No, I don't think we... No, we shot stuff for a documentary that I was shooting for him. But anyway, oh, okay. I think we're getting ourselves way off topic no. here. Well, no, but, but basically... What, what I mean by that answer is, no, I kind of have no idea. I really, I want to finish this movie... And not that there haven't been other things that have occurred to me that might make interesting uh, documentary topics, but I just want to finish the Bob Frank movie, and then um, and then I'll worry about what to make after that or, yeah. or what to do. And actually, while we're on the topic, sure, uh, can I play this clip of uh, of Bob talking about oh, yeah. art and stuff from the film, and maybe we can come back and end after that. Yeah, let's let's hear this and, because it and, sums up everything I feel about this stuff. Yeah, do you you want to set it up? Yeah, I guess the setup is just it's um, Bob talking about uh, I don't know maybe he's talking about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I mean, not really. <laughs> he's just talking talking about kind of the choices of in in just life as you know as a singer songwriter and how you kind of go about living a a life in, in, in pursuing your craft. All right, here, let's take a listen. 
it just it's really not much there you have to make it all up you have to constantly be making up what this is how important this is because it really isn't important at all so it's just something you do you know it's just so one again it's like you could be making shoes or something if it's just something you like to do and you really enjoy doing it well yeah that's keep doing it i don't know it's there's not much it's just pretty simple to understand that i think but it's I mean, to talk about it, you know, it's pretty simplistic. Maybe I'm overgeneralizing, oversimplifying it. I don't know. So, Isaac, uh, do you basically say, are you, are you going to keep on making shoes? Is that what you're doing? Here? Yeah. Is this what it is to you? That is exactly it. Um, may as well. Something I do, something <laughs> I like doing. May as well just keep doing it. Right. But do you know what, but you could be like, literally, I feel like you could do anything next, right? Like you could make another documentary, but I feel like if you get inspired, like maybe you'll make a web series about something else, you know, who knows, right? Or do you feel like documentaries where you're at for a while? Well, I mean, it could be a web docu a web series documentary, but yeah, I just, I guess, you know, the goal, I don't know what the goal is. What's the goal? Um, yeah. It'll just be to make something that I like doing. So right. uh, we'll see. But it's probably not going to be something that, you know, is a giant money pit. Even though the, even this Bob Frank movie is kind of a money pit. I would like for, and I said this I think the last time I was on your podcast, it's like there's the video projects I do that make money. And then the video projects that I like to do. And I would like for those two lanes to merge into one. And there's been some proof that that can kind of happen, like on the Fred Eaglesmith thing. Um, so that's kind of what I'll continue to be on the lookout for. But I guess the more important thing is just uh, is uh, not overthinking it and just uh, doing what you like to do. Right. Awesome. Well, you hear that, everybody. Keep on making your stuff whatever it, you want it to be and try not to spend your life savings doing it. <laughs> or spend your life savings if that's what you want to do. And yeah, right. sure, keep doing it. Right, right. Um, all right, man. Well, where, where can people find you? You have a website, um, place you can watch the Fred Doc, place you want people to go, place you want people to find you at. Like, hit us with all the stuff. I'm uh, Isaac Pingree, my full name, at, on Twitter. And, okay. uh and uh, my website is lagoonside.com, like a lagoon. And, nice. And uh, the Fred Eaglesmith movie is on Amazon Prime, and it's on Vimeo On Demand, and it's going to be popping up. I think it's on Udu Digital, which is like a Roku-related thing, whatever, something. Uh, right. And then it'll hopefully be popping up on more platforms, too. Well, if people want to support you, like, should they go to the Fred Eaglesmith website and buy it there? Is that going to be the most helpful for you? you like, know? who really? Like, somebody listening to your podcast is going to be like, instead of watching it for ninety nine cents or free, if I have Prime, I'm going to go. I mean, buy it there for might twenty dollars. <laughs> there like, might be somebody if who a really, really big Fred likes Fred Eaglesmith fan. Like, yeah, fine. Or if they want to like give it as a gift to like or a music their grandparent fan. who's a really big Fred Eaglesmith you know? fan. But I think... Uh, or maybe I they're think, a collector? I, I think it's know. enough to just, if they're interested, um, to, you know, watch whatever they want online. All right, people. So we'll put all the links in the show notes. You can choose your way to get Fred. You could watch it for next to nothing on Prime. Or you could buy it. It's up to you. <laughs> your choice. Um, all right, Isaac. Take us out of this episode, man. All right. Thanks for listening. Art, thanks for inviting me to... Uh, 
co-host this episode with you. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. And if you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast or uh, leave a review on uh, any of the things that you could listen to the thing on. Um, All right, everybody. Have a great week. Talk to you later.